Please be seated. And please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119, you'll find the notes in the bulletin or on our website if you're joining us online. And you'll find the text on the back of the uh, notes in case you don't have a Bible. We are going to continue our study into Psalm 119, the longest chapter, the longest psalm in Scripture. And give you an idea of where we're headed, we're going to study the um, Gimel strophe or stanza this week. And then next week, we're going to look at Daleth. And then, in the first Sunday in February, we're going to begin our study of James. And my plan is, that moving forward, when we get done a section of James, a paragraph or two, returning and doing the next eight verses of Psalm 119, and if I time it right, we should conclude both James and Psalm 119 about the same time. So this week, next week, and then, God willing, starting the book of James. Um, This is now our fourth week in James and our third time looking at a stanza. You'll remember that the, uh, did I say James? This is our zero time in James. This is our fourth week in Psalm 119. I got my head in two places. It's, it's, you can tell I'm I'm, um, discombobulated. You can pray for my combobulation. Um, And we're going to be looking at the third strophe this morning. And the new themes get introduced. In the first strophe, in the Aleph strophe, the, the emphasis was on the way of blessing. Contrary to what you might think, contrary to what the culture says, contrary to what the wisdom of the world is, blessing is found in fidelity to God and his word, lived out in faithful obedience. That is the place of blessing. The second strophe suggests that in your youth is the time to begin. And the type of dedication, the type of commitment to God's word, and the prayers, open my eyes, give me understanding, teach me your testimonies. Well, this week, in the third stanza, the third strophe, a new element adds, is added in, and that is external threat, persecution, and trouble. In our first two strophes, we've only considered internal dangers, the potential that I might be faithless. So he prays that you would direct my steps. He's concerned, the psalmist is concerned that he might be unfaithful. He's concerned that he might not pursue the Lord with his whole heart. But now in these eight verses, external threats are considered. And they become a major theme in the rest of the psalm. What is introduced here, foes, enemies, takes up a lot of space in the rest of the psalm. So I'd like to read the Gimel strophe, these, this section Pray, and then we can dive in. Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Lord God, we echo this prayer. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. We pray that you would uphold us and sustain us. And deal bountifully with us, even as we deal with external pressures and difficulty. We want the heart of this psalmist. We want a heart 
devoted to you, even as we live as aliens and strangers in this world. Give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled this stanza, Sustain Me in This Hostile World. I think you can break this into two chunks, verses 17 to 21, praying for God's abundant supply, and then in verses 22 to 24, praying for God's swift deliverance. Uh, the psalmist is now looking outwards. He starts looking at God and his word, and he looks in for the threat of his faithlessness. Now his eyes move out as well. It's, it's not exclusively looking at external threats, but they are now included, and they will be included for the rest of this psalm. And so the opening pr- request, there's um, really four requests in this stanza. You'll see in verse 17, deal bountifully. Verse 18, open my eyes. Verse 19, hide not. Verse 22, take away. Those are the four requests, please, the psalmist is making. And this first one is for strengthening, is for strengthening. Deal bountifully with your servant. Graciously give to your servant is the idea. Deal bountifully with your servant. And in the relationship's important. We, God is a fount of grace and help. But the notion is this. The psalmist is assuming the role as servant, and of course a servant's master is responsible for supplying the servant with the things they need. Clothes, lodging, the tools for the job. That's, that's part of the relationship of a servant and a master. And so the psalmist embraces his role as the servant of the Lord, and then is calling on God, okay, now give me the things I need to keep your word and to live. God promises that abundant supply, but it it requires us to assume the right relationship with him. We, We mentioned this a week or two ago, that God wants to have a relationship with everyone. And in one sense, God does have a relationship with everyone. For some people, the relationship is hostility, animosity. What he wants is a right relationship with you. And a right relationship is you being his child and he being the father. You being his servant and he being your Lord. That's the relationship God wants. And so this prayer is boldly made from one who adopts that position. Yes, I am your servant. And so therefore, Lord, deal graciously with me. Deal bountifully with me. Give me the things I need. So I'd encourage you to pray boldly to God, but pray from that position as well. As his child, a child pleading with a father. As a servant to a master or lord. He prays for strengthening. Um, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. And notice the two reasons he wants this strengthening. The first, he says, is to live, that I may live. Now this is a prayer that gets repeated numerous times in the psalm. And I can't be dogmatic in this instance, whether it's referring to literally life and death threats or whether it's referring to the other, the blank here, joy in life. Because I think throughout the psalm, it can mean both. It's clear he's tired, he's worn out, he's weary, he's discouraged. And there are times when he's saying something like revive or enliven me. And yet at other times, it's very clear his life is in his hands. Let me read to you some of the examples. At least 15 times in this psalm, a prayer for life the sustenance of life is made. Verse 25, give me life according to your word. Verse 37, give me life in your ways. Verse 40, in your righteousness, give me life. Verse 50, your promise gives me life. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live. 
But look at verse, turn to verse 87 and 88, just to make it clear, there, there is real life-threatening issues for this psalmist. 87 and 88, they have almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So there's at least one instance where he's talking about a real threat to his life. I'm not certain that in every instance of asking for life, that's what's in view, which is why I'm saying throughout the psalm, I think it means at times, literally like, I'm about to die, help. And other times, I'm weak and I'm tired, strengthen me, revive me, enliven me. Or verse 107, I'm severely afflicted, O Lord, give me life. Verse um, 49, nope. Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Verse 154, give me life according to your promise. Verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life. Verse 159, give me life according to your steadfast love. Verse 175, let my soul live and praise you. So this is a pretty dominant theme in this psalm. This is a psalm that's, a lot is going on in Psalm 119. Yes, it is a focused supplication and prayer to the word of, the God of the word about the word of God. But there's much lament and sorrow and suffering and external hostility and persecution taking place as well. This is a psalm of lament. That article that I see is missing. I'll print some more copies. David Pallison's excellent article on Psalm 119 talks about and views it from the eyes of someone suffering. Another commentator that I have speaks of this psalm, the title of the book, A Sojourner's Guide to Walking with God. And so the psalmist is crying out for life, whether or not it's protect me from a life-threatening danger in this instance, or as I tend to think, given this, the nature of this strophe, it's the weariness, it's the tiredness, it's the lack of energy that he speaks of in verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. So it is strengthening with a purpose that I might live and have joy in life, but also notice the other purpose, that I may keep your word. And again, this gets back to the assumption of a servant. A servant can rightly ask for and petition a lord or master for the things he needs if the servant is saying, give me the things I need so I can fulfill your will. That's again part and parcel with the relationship, the assumption I need to be alive, I need to have energy, and I need to do the things you want me to do. And so he calls on God for that. And we need to check that when we're making our prayer request to God, it's similar. You know, sometimes we be in danger of, Lord, fulfill my will be done. Let me have what I want to do. And here, his two concerns, I want to live, I want to keep your word. So deal bountifully with your servant. He's praying for God's abundant supply, the blank here, the purpose of a servant's life is, of course, to please and serve his Lord and Master. And so he prays boldly because he's assuming the right relationship. He's not resisting it. And, of course, he's going to his Lord and Master to give him the things he needs to accomplish his will and to live, as he should. As he should. He prays for strength. That's the first thing from God's supplies. He's calling on his Lord for the things he needs. He needs strength. Strength to live, strength to obey God's word. Next, he prays for understanding. Verses 18 and 19, he prays for it positively, and he prays for it negatively. 
Look at verses 18 and 19. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. So open your eyes is one way of asking it. Open my eyes. Another way of asking it is don't, don't, don't hide, hide your commandments from me. So what's he asking for? Let's look at the first request. Open my eyes. Now, this is, of course, metaphorical. He's, he's not really blind. But he understands um, something that is, is profoundly true, which is that we can read this book. And I, this can be a danger for me. I can, I can translate some Greek. My Hebrew is pretty pathetic, but I can do okay with Greek. And I can diagram sentences, and I can find main verbs, and I can parse things out. And the temptation is for me to assume I, without aid, can figure out what things mean. But no, we're completely dependent upon God to open our eyes. It doesn't, we don't do that in spite or instead of study, but with our study and with our meditation in God's word, we need him to open our eyes. We need him to, to show us the beautiful things in his word. But notice particularly that in the setting where he is weak and tired and he's asking for life, what he needs is, and here's your blank, I need to see glory. I need to see glory. And I'm going to pause here. I'm going to sort of detour a little bit. But turn your Bibles to, to Exodus 33. We may be tempted when we're weary, when we're tired, to think what we need is um, some R&R. What we need is a good distraction. And those things can be helpful for rest. But really, the, the, re, the deep reality is that what is meant to invigorate us, what is meant to fill us with strength and joy and stabilize us, is glory. We are made to behold glory. I'll prove that to you. How much money is made every summer for people to go see the latest spectacular superhero movie? What are you paying for? Well, you're paying for some likable characters and some interesting action, but really what you're paying for and why you'll go see it in the theater as opposed to at home is the big spectacle of these amazing feats and explosions and battle, it's glory. It's a small piece of glory. Why do people get up on their feet and start screaming at the TV when an exceptionally well-executed play is taking place in a sporting event? So I'm told. (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, Because they're seeing something, they're seeing glory. They're seeing something done exceptionally well, and, and it just rises up within us. When we see glory, Praise and joy and passion comes out of us. I've never seen someone watching the Super Bowl. Now would be an appropriate time to cheer. It happens naturally, right? Because we see something that excites us. We see something that we see glory in, and we just start praising. We start getting up on our feet. You ever gone to the Grand Canyon? You ever look at a starry night in a particularly clear evening and just, whoa. We were made to behold the glory, which is good news for people whose hope is that they will behold the living God forever and ever. So this psalmist is weary and tired. He's praying for life. We're going to seize God's enemies really soon. And he's not looking for other protections. What he knows he first needs, above all things, is satisfaction and glory that he sees in God's word. This is really similar to what happens with Moses. Remember, the people make a golden calf And the Lord is about done with them. Exodus 33, Moses goes up on the mountain. And the Lord, um, he's picked up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, 
And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God's initial response, my presence will go up with you and I will give you rest. So Moses intercedes for the people. God, it's not enough that you simply spare them. You've got to go up with us in our midst. That's our joy. That's our boast. That's our glory. The Lord says, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll do the thing you ask. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring up this people from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going up with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So Moses is up there on the mountain. He's discouraged the people. I mean, he was angry at the people. You can read the chapter before. He broke down the golden statue. He crumbled it and made the people drink water with it. He ordered the Levites to go and strike people down. But Moses is vexed. And yet when he goes to God, he intercedes for his people, and he knows what he needs and what they need is a greater sight of God's glory. That is what we need. When you're tired, when I'm tired, when I'm weary, what I need is some sense of God's glory in his word. And this is a profound reality, a profound reality. I need to see glory. I got to remind myself what I don't need first and foremost is the next episode of my TV show. That can be fine. That can be good rest. The temptation is for me to find my rest, to find my strength in lesser glories. Instead of going again and again and finding glory in God's word. Um, and, and notice the location. He's not just looking for glory anywhere. Then I might be behold wondrous things out of your law. Right? We, we, we see this in the word. Turn to the other end of your Bible, to 2 Corinthians. And I'm pausing here because this is so important to, to wrap our heads around. Um, we can run the risk as Christians of thinking Christianity is simply a matter of accepting and assenting propositions. It certainly is that, but it's more than that. Um, In one sense, James makes the point, we'll see this in a few weeks or months, that the demons have some pretty decent theology. They believe God's one. They're not confused about the nature of God. Satan quotes scripture. He knows the Bible pretty well, apparently. The difference between the demons and the holy angels is the holy angels are delighted by, satisfied by, worship and adore the living God. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. And the demons shrink and run and beg to be thrown into pigs to get away. That's the difference. It's the emotional, as Jonathan Edwards would say, the affections I would say in this passage, it's cast as what you see when you see the living God. Do you see something glorious? Do you see something beautiful or not? And, and in the framing of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, in one sense, we could speak of those who are saved and those who perish as those who see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who don't. Look at this. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Since we, are such, we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember, Moses would meet with the Lord God at the tent of meeting, and when he left, he'd glow. 
as a visible mark of his closeness to God, and it kind of creeped the Israelites out. And hey, Moses, can you uh, can you cover that up with a veil? And then Paul's going to use that picture of a veil and glory as a metaphor to describe why his countrymen, why is it that the Jews of Paul's day mostly missed their Messiah? Why is it they rejected him? Why is it that so many of them cried out, crucify, crucify? Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, which, by the way, is the book that this psalm we're studying is praising, When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now look at this in verse 18. Here is a model of sanctification. How do we grow as Christians? And the Bible could speak of it in a number of different ways. And here... We grow as Christians primarily by seeing and being changed by seeing glory. And we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. And if you look at the preceding context, clearly in the Bible, in the law, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now jump into chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, we don't, we have um, ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then Paul has to address, first he's addressed, why is it your countrymen largely rejected the Messiah? Now he's explaining why it is that people who hear his own preaching reject. Because as you read through the book of Acts, Paul has great success, but Still, the majority of people who hear his message reject it. Why is that? Could it be, Paul, that your message isn't that great? No. Look at the explanation for why people perish. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So there's a sense in which those who hear the gospel and don't respond in faith aren't veiled. They're not seeing it rightly. Okay, what aren't they seeing? In their case, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul presents the gospel, and somebody looks at it, and through the veil, they don't see glory, they see something ugly, they see something unattractive, they see something embarrassing. And Paul is insisting, it's not that his gospel is not glorious, it's that they're blinded, So why do they perish? Because they don't see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, how do people get saved then? Look at verse 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You and I were saved if we know the Lord because one day God spoke into your and my dead heart and he said, let there be light. The lights went on and the veil was removed. And that same gospel and that same Jesus that you had heard of, had presented to you maybe dozens of times without interest, all of a sudden was the most beautiful, glorious thing you'd ever seen. That's how we get saved. We see glory. You would never trust yourself to Jesus. You would never entrust yourself to him if you did not find him beautiful and glorious. 
So that's how we're saved, and the end of chapter 3 makes it clear. That's how we're sanctified. Turn back to Psalm 119. I, I do this aside because seeing glory in God's word is critically important. Critically important. And, and maybe you've been frustrated in your Bible readings, and you get up, you read, because you know you're supposed to read. It's kind of boring. Kind of can't wait to get done so you can check the news, check the things that really interest you. And you've experienced that we are indeed powerless on our own strength to see beautiful things in God's word. You're right, and that can be frustrating. This then needs to become our regular prayer. You may notice that some version of verse 18, I almost always pray every Sunday morning. It is of critical importance both to be saved and to grow in your salvation that we again and again ask God to show us beautiful, wondrous things in his word, because that is what grounds and satisfies us. And if we don't see glory here, we will look for it somewhere else. Make no mistake. You will look to be satisfied with glory and wonder somewhere else. And so if your Bible reading is dry, um, recognize that's a problem. And the good news is, if you will adopt the position of servant, you have a master who gladly opens the eyes of the blind, who gladly gives ears to hear, who gladly takes stone hearts and repates them of flesh. Ask, call out. Oftentimes when I'm reading my Bible, I'll liken it to Jacob wrestling with the angel. I'm not letting you go to give me a blessing. I'm not stopping reading till I see some glory, till I see something satisfying, till I see something encouraging, till I see something awesome. So it is important we have regular Bible reading times so that we have opportunities to see glory, but the Bible reading times in and of themselves are insufficient. If we're just going through it as a road exercise, not looking for glory, not looking for things that are awesome, it can be pointless. So I'd encourage you to to press on and ask the Lord to open your eyes to behold wondrous things in his word. He's given us this model. This is a great prayer to pray. Seek it. Don't be satisfied with boring, apathetic Bible reading. Press on to see something exciting, something wonderful. Because the reality is if we find the book boring, it speaks to some blindness or problem in us, not in God's word. And faith believes that. So what faith says when you read the Bible, and it's kind of boring, clearly something's off with me. Lord, would you fix me? That's a great prayer to pray. That's a great prayer to pray. Open my eyes. Now we'll look at the flip side of this. Hide not your commandments from me. Now he front ends this prayer request by confessing, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Um, a sojourner on the earth. And which is a confession of alienation. That's your blank there. This is one of the verses in this psalm that suggests to me it was written in the exile. It was written outside of the land. Can't be dogmatic with that. But I think the Babylonian exile is a good fit considering the characters that are also in this psalm, oppressing the psalmist. He, he's feeling alienation. He doesn't feel at home in this world. And the logic here is because this world is not my home, because I don't feel at place in this world, all the more I need to see beautiful things in your world. Word, I, All I've got, in other words... Is, is you and your word. I'm a stranger and an alien in the world, so don't you dare. Please don't hide your commandments from me. Negatively. He desires it. He knows he needs it. And he's, don't, I got nothing else, Lord. 
This world is strange and foreign to me. I don't fit in. I got a lot of enemies. So whatever you do, please don't hide your word from me. Which may strike you as a strange prayer request. But the reality is our Lord Jesus made it clear God does indeed hide his word from people. Remember in Luke 8? Jesus, starting in Luke chapter 8, begins to teach in parables. And I've heard so many people mis-explain why that is. They'll say things like, Jesus told stories people could relate to. Jesus put the cookies on the low shelf. Jesus made it so anyone could understand. Except when his disciples asked him, his explanation for why he spoke in parables is to confound people. Listen, listen to Luke 8, verses 8 and 9. Jesus begins with the parable of the sower. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that, purpose statement, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And if you remember however many years back to our study of Luke, I suggested this is when a second emphasis of Jesus' ministry came, and he came in as light and life to preach a gospel, and he came in to harden and expose unbelief. And a little later in Luke 8, he warns his disciples, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. If you've not been faithful to act upon, to respond rightly to what God has shown you in his word, that might explain why God hasn't been showing you much lately in it. That's a real, that's a real possibility. If you presume upon God's grace, if he shows you in his word something that you ought to apply, and you say, oh, that's interesting, and you go on, don't be surprised when you open it and it's, it's a non-glorious book. The psalmist is well aware of that. Jesus warns his disciples, the one who... Has much will be given. The one who thinks he has, even what he takes, what he thinks he has, will be taken away. So, whatever your position, call out to see things in God's word, and then make time to put it in front of your face and to to get other distractions out of the way. God delights in revealing His glory. He delights in revealing Himself and His word. What you can do is desire it, ask for it, and prioritize it. Okay. Spent a lot of time on this point, but I think it's, it's hugely important. It's hugely important because God blinds those who go astray. The last bit in this section is now a contrast. Both of these two sections in this strophe end with a contrast. And I think it's a painful contrast because the psalmist so loves God and his word, he's vexed by those who are opposed to him. So here's the contrast in verses 20 and 21. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. That's the contrast. And I think part of the argument is, Lord, I'm being faithful. I'm being a faithful servant, so give me the things I need. Give me the things I need in light of the contrast between my soul is consumed with longing for your rules. And again, the logic here, notice the recurrent of the word servant. He's in a right relationship. I'm your servant, and I am longing to know what it is you want me to do to please you. For those of you who are married or have have pursued someone for marriage, you, you probably remember the times of how interested you were and how attentive you were to what things you could do to please the object of your affection. I want to know. I remember when I was pursuing Serena, I, I, I was studying. I want to please you. I want to know what would make you happy. This servant of God is saying the same thing. My soul, 
My soul is consumed with longing for your rules. Not because he's a legalist, but because he loves the living God. And as his servant, he wants to do his will. He wants to please him. He wants to be faithful. And he's consumed with this longing at all times. The blank here, in all seasons of life. God's servant yearns to please him in all seasons of life. Now this season of this psalm in this section is one of strife and difficulty. But in seasons of feasting and fatness, he also, at all times, because that, of course, is part of what makes the identity of a servant. A servant is someone who serves another. And if you will assume that relationship with God, all this grace, all this help is available. But he's modeling for us how we should come to him. The notion of child the father is similar That's just as good. Come as a child looking to please a parent to do their will. But but that is what's being modeled here. A servant coming to a Lord saying, I'm consumed with longing. I'm consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Now, in contrast to that, we now get introduced to the other people. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And the logic here is this. There are those people who are under God's blessing and under God's curse. The psalmist is making it clear he's striving to be under God's blessing. He is willing to be God's servant. He's able to say, I'm your servant. I, I'm, in, I'm trying to please you. I'm trying to do what you want me to do. So, so open my eyes. Don't hide your law. Give me the things I need for life. But there are other people who all they can and should expect from God is a curse. You rebuke the insolent ones. Insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. So what's, what's going on here? Well, the word insolent, and this shows up a number of times in the psalm as well, is speaking of pride. I'll give you some examples. Verses, um, verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. Verse 78, the insolent, let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. Verse 85, the insolent have done, dug pitfalls for me. Verse 122, give your servant a pledge for good. Let not the insolent oppress me. So there are people who are proud. And how is that pride manifested? It's manifested in them wandering from God's commandments. Now, it's interesting here. They don't, we're not said to cast them off. They're not said to abhor God's commandments. They wander from them. In other words, I think it's quite possible that some of these people that this psalmist is referring to as the insolent were formerly people who of the book, were formerly people who said they loved God. They wandered. These aren't people who at least initially just struck away. This is wandering. They're proud. And the blank here is they have apathy. That they think they know better. They think they've got more important things to concern themselves with. They think their wisdom is to be preferred. They don't think of themselves as servants. They don't humble themselves in that sense. And consequently, they slowly but surely wander away from God's commandment. So they have a mark of pride and insolence. And it places them under a curse. Now, you may think the psalmist here is kind of being mean-spirited. Why is he cursing people? He's not. He is echoing a curse in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 27, 26, the book of Deuteronomy ends with the blessing and the curse. Where God makes it really plain. Hey, if you'll be faithful, if you'll hold to my word, if you'll try to please me, it's going to go good for you. And if you don't, it's going to be real bad. 
Listen to Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. The psalmist is not coming up with anything new here. He's actually demonstrating he knows his Old Testament. He knows already it's been declared that people who don't keep God's law are under a curse. He's not giving the curse. He's referencing one that's already in play. Because of their pride, because of their apathy. And so the danger perennially is just a slow wandering, right? The New Testament equivalent to this would be like Hebrews 3.12. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart to, to fall away from the living God. A slow drift, a wandering. It's another reason why we constantly need to be looking for glory in this word to keep us glued, to keep us attached, to keep us coming back again and again and again to see glory. You know, when, once you've seen glory somewhere, you're excited to see it again. I, whether it's the next you know, Marvel movie, whether it's the Super Bowl coming up, once you've seen glory somewhere, you, you get excited, you anticipate it. And, and this can be a, a virtuous cycle as well. Once you start seeing beautiful things in God's word, once your mind gets blown seeing things, whoa, you, you want to go back. And you can build up inertia that way as well. Or through insolence and apathy, you can wander and be under a curse. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And it's precisely because of this dichotomy, there are those who are pursuing God, those who aren't. Look back to verse 10. We are capable of this wandering. Because what does he plead on God not to let happen? Verse 10 of Psalm 119. Let, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. Let me not wander from your commandments. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And so don't think this is entirely an effort, an issue of, of effort and work. It, it does require effort and work on our part. And it's also pleading out to God, don't, don't let that happen. Don't let my heart cool to your law. Don't let me start being blinded to the glory in your word. Don't let me start to wander. Because I know that ultimately those who wander, and, and some of us can wander, and the good shepherd goes and he brings them back. But those who wander off and never come back, they're under a curse. They departed from us, for they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have stayed, says First John 2. So the psalmist puts that dichotomy up. He's on the side of trying to pursue God, trying to please him, and he recognizes the other side are those who are under a curse because through their insolence and pride, they wander from his commandments. So that's the first point, the first supplication, the first plea. God, give me what I need. I need sustenance and strength to live and to obey you, and I need to see glorious things in your word, and I need to understand your rules so I can serve you as your servant. Now let's look at the the last section here, verses 22 to 24. Praying for God's swift deliverance. Praying for God's swift deliverance. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Okay. So the first request here, take away from me scorn and contempt. Um, Honor, dishonor, 
pride and shame are, are very common, very prevalent biblical themes. And it is not wrong, in fact, it's quite right, to not want to feel dishonor and shame. Um, that the Bible assumes we don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be dishonored. Uh, I, I think in some unhelpful ways our culture primarily talks about it through self-esteem concepts. But if we were actually to speak of honor and shame and pride and dishonor, we'd probably find the Bible had a lot more to say on those topics because it's an incredibly powerful force. And here he's feeling dishonor, contempt, and scorn, and he doesn't like it. And that's fine. That's right. I've spoken to people who've had to endure dishonor and I've been told them, like, it, it, the displeasure you feel from that is fitting. It's appropriate. No one, we're not made to delight in dishonor. And so he's pleading for God to take it away. Presumably, these insolent ones we saw in our looking at them through the rest of the psalm are, are slandering him, are harassing him. Uh, verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. The insolent have wronged me with falsehood, verse 78. The insolent have dug pitfalls, pitfalls for me. Verse 122, let not the insolent oppress me. And it is fine and right to be concerned about that. And sometimes we can get the impression that if you're being persecuted, if you're being harassed by unbelievers, you've just got to suck it up. You've got to be willing to endure it. And you've got to get your priorities straight. First and foremost, what you need is strength from God, sight from God for his word. But by all means, lay out your heart and say, God, could you take away the shame? Could you take away the reproach, please? That's, that's a great thing to pray. We need to, like Jesus, be in, willing to endure the shame. Remember Hebrews? He endured the shame of the cross for the glory that was set before him because he wanted the glory enough to endure the shame. But he endured the shame. We, we cry out to God. And notice the logic here. It's not a purchasing thing. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. You owe me. Rather, I think what he's saying is this shame and this contempt is undeserved. First Peter can say, if you're beaten and you've done wrong and you endure it, what credit is that? It's possible I'm enduring shame because I've acted shamefully. It's possible I'm bearing reproach and scorn and contempt because I've acted contemptuously. What he's saying is, Lord, take away the scorn and contempt because I'm innocent. I've kept your testimonies. I'm, I'm, I haven't done what they're accusing me of doing, I think is what he's saying. Um, so the blank here would be the rightness of it. It is fitting and right for God to take away the contempt and the scorn because he's innocent. Uh, a few weeks ago, we read David say something similar in Psalm 18. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. And I know we can get sort of hung up and like, no one's righteous, no, not one. He's not using it in a macro sense. He's using it in a, in this situation, the people who are pouring scorn on me are doing it wrongfully. They're, they're, they're slandering me. They're falsely accusing me. And so that particular scorn from those particular accusations, could you remove that? Could you vindicate me? Next point, we must call on God to vindicate us. So on the one hand, it is entirely right and fitting for us to be concerned with vindication, to desire it, to hunger it for it. The, the temptation for us is we want to vindicate ourselves, right? We, we want to prove we're innocent. And again and again, the scripture calls on us to vindicate ourselves by calling on God to do it. You, you know, Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So on the one hand, don't feel bad. Don't feel sheepish about your desire for vindication. More and more in this culture, as people understand what we believe and what our values are, you'll be vindicated. You'll be vilified, I mean. You'll be called intolerant. You'll be called hateful. You'll be called all sorts of things. It's not pleasant. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's something right about not wanting it. The psalmist calls on God to act for him. Our temptation is, I'll take care of this. I'll stand up for me. I'll show them. And that's where you need to learn from this psalm. On the one hand, by all means, cry out that the shame, the contempt, the scorn be taken away. And let God do it. Let God do it. We must call on God to vindicate us. And then we get our final contrast in light of the contrast between verses 23 and 24. And here we get a further insight into the possible scope of the psalmist's dilemma. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Even though princes sit plotting against me. Literally, the Hebrew reads, speaking against me. I think it probably is more the idea of slander. It could be conspiracy. But these powerful men are talking against, talking about, talking evil of the psalmist. Um, And especially in his world where he lived, there was the people in power and there were people under power. He wouldn't have had a vote And so he is powerless against these powerful people, except he can call upon God. And and if the princes and the rulers of the land are conspiring and speaking against you, you are in real threat of harm, right? And so he's aware of this. Word has come to him that these people have it out for him. These people are talking trash about him. They slander him. They they show up again also in um, verse 46. In verse 46, um, hold on. No, sorry, that's kings show up in 46. They show up again in one, hold on, where are they? I have too many sheets up here. 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. So they show up again at the end of the psalm. And again, the setting of Babylon fits really well. It doesn't have to be, but something like that fits really well, the captivity in Babylon. And you can imagine how powerless a Jew in a foreign land under a foreign king would be. And then to find out, you think of the situation with Daniel, where the king's advisors are conspiring against him. That's a really good fit. Plotting a trap for him. And the temptation when that happens for us is to, to do things, to act. Notice how the psalmist responds to this. It's an even deeper and greater commitment to studying the word. The temptation for us when we know this threat's imminent is to, okay, that was great. I gave God a try. Now I got to take matters in my own hands. The contrast is right there. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. He's unshaken by this. At least in his conduct, at least in how he acts. He's shaken that he's calling out to God for help, for vindication and deliverance. But it hasn't interrupted his study of the word. 
It's another way of, of how we can tell how we're doing. When trials and calamity come, does it drive us to God in his word or does it drive us away? The psalmist here, his reliance upon God is seen that even though these princes are plotting, he's still a servant of God and he's got to concern himself with pleasing God and doing what God would have him to do. Even though princes are slandering me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And then the final two points. If you have princes, let's put it in our context, senators and governors and president and cabinet and Congress plotting against you. I'm not saying they are, but something like that. What do you do? You keep studying the word and you keep finding satisfaction in the word. And you call out to God. Your testimonies are my delight. That's the contrast. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And again, you see how your blank here is satisfaction. What provides stability in this type of persecution? I'm delighted in God's word because I know him through it. And I know his will through it. I'm a stranger in this world. This world isn't my home. So the only place I have to look to find satisfaction and joy is seeing the beauty and the glory of the word, which reflects the God I love and serve. And even though these powerful men are conspiring against me, I'm satisfied in your word, and I have confidence, your last point, confidence in your word. Because that's, I think, the the emphasis here. Um, When you're in danger, you may be tempted to seek other counsel. You you may be tempted to seek other wisdom to solve your problem. What are you going to do? God's word is my counselor. I'm going to God's word for counsel when I'm in danger. I'm going to God's word. I'm going to do what his word says to do even when powerful men are opposed to me. You might be tempted to think, you know, and I've heard people say things that basically, they won't come out and say it, but what they'll say in essence is, yeah, God's word's great in normal circumstances, but considering the threat and considering what's going on and considering the danger, we need to do this other thing. Uh-uh. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. I had a professor once say that the the power of holy war is holiness. You want God to act on your behalf? Cling to him in faithfulness. Make way for his wrath. Make way for him to act. Call upon him. Call out to him. And hold fast to his word. We're going to call the worship team up for our closing song. And I just encourage you to, to press through So you see glory in God's word. Closing song affirms this. I will delight in the law of the Lord. Please stand as we sing.